So as we look to Exodus chapter 3 and 4, um, I've entitled this lesson, A Leader Called. What we're seeing in Moses is God developing a leader. God's developing in Moses the things that he needs to, to have occur in order for him to be able to fulfill God's purpose for him. Um, so, God always requires this personal development before leadership is, is conferred. By the way, if, if you need a paper, if you didn't get one, there are a couple in the back, there are a couple in the front. So, anyway, I think probably every, most everybody grabbed one on the way in. Um, but this development is, is necessary in leadership, and we can all agree that leadership is not best given to those who are not personally developed. This means that God used, in the life of Moses, unique hardship and humiliation. Um, I've heard it said of ministry, just because this is, the, this is the water that I swim in, but a thousand sorrows teaches a man to preach. If you've ever heard that, um, that quote. But the same things are happening here. Moses is having to go through some personal development. He's having to be humble before he can be used. We should take a lesson from Moses' life. God may also use difficult means to teach us the lessons that we need to know in order to be who he wants us to be. So, we should not necessarily shrink back from trial, but we should accept it knowing that it is often God's means of taking us from where we are to where we need to be. But Moses has a unique encounter with God. He has an encounter with God, and this is necessary, right? in order to be used of God. And it begins this way in Exodus chapter 3. I'm going to read uh, for a little bit. Exodus chapter 3, verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro. This is an interesting little change of pace, isn't it? Right? He was favored man in the house of Pharaoh. Now he's out working for his father-in-law, shepherding which I don't believe back in these days was a very uh, dignified role. But that's what he's doing. And as a reminder, Jethro is the priest of Midian. So he's working for his father-in-law, and his father-in-law is a pagan. His father-in-law isn't just a pagan, but he's a pagan priest, right? He's serious about his paganism. And he's shepherding for this man, a priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness, and he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a, of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take off the sandals, your sandals off your feet. For the place which you are standing, on which you are standing, is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. And I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, 
to the place of the Canaanites, uh, Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the, Hiv- the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression from which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. So, this sets the stage. Moses has an encounter with God. This relates to us that is not simply character development that we need, that people need in order to be used of God. It's, it's an experience with the true and living God. And that is what Moses has occur here. God's calling Moses is holy of grace, by the way. I don't know if you remember, but remember who's Moses, who Moses' parents were? Remember those folks? Well, neither does anybody else, right? Because they weren't even named. They were not even named in the Scriptures, right? It's just uh, a, a, um, a Levite woman and a Levite man, Moses' parents. So God's calling of him is holy of grace. It's, it's not based on any goodness that Moses has d- displayed, right? Just a chapter ago, he was committing murder. It's also not based on his family or his spiritual pedigree. Indeed, He's currently dwelling in the home of a pagan priest. So, what does Moses have to credit his own salvation or his own knowledge of God? Nothing but the grace of God. I have surely seen the affliction of my people, God says here in, uh, in 3, 7 and following. I have surely seen the affliction of my people and have heard their cry. I know their sufferings. Look at all these verbs. I've seen, I have heard, I know, and I have come to deliver them. This actually mirrors the very same thing that we saw in the, very, in the closing verses of Exodus chapter 2. Remember what it said? And God heard their groaning, and God remembered His covenant. God saw the people, and God knew. These verbs telling us about the character of God. God's interactions with the people are always directed toward a higher purpose. Notice this. Here, God is seeking to move for the sake of His people. So what does He do? He calls a broken servant to display His glory through the brokenness of Moses. So that in the end, nobody will be able to say, well, it's a good thing that God raised up Moses because Moses had all the great leadership ability that we needed. No, the glory instead will go to God who used the broken servant. God is also moving to make His glory seen in His faithfulness to His promises. Look at this in verse 8. So God is not simply delivering them out of a bad situation. That's not the point. He's rather fulfilling them fulfilling to them a promise to give them a land. Remember this? To bring them up out of a land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. This is is the promise that God gave to Abraham. It's coming full now in at least a partial way. So, then we see Moses singing a new tune. I don't know if you remember Moses' attitude in chapters 1 and 2, remember? He had this sense of justice and he needed to, to, to exact justice. He needed to come and make things right. And that led him to do one really bad thing and one pretty good thing. Remember what he did? He struck down another person. He mur- committed murder out of this sense of justice. It's twisted. It's like all of ours. 
And then at another scene, he sees these women who are watering their flocks and these shepherds are trying to harass him and he, he puts a stop to that. We see a good expression of this sense of justice that he has inside him. He's very bold. He seems to know what needs to happen. But now we see Moses singing a different tune. If we look, picking up in chapter 3, verse 13. Chapter 3, verse 13. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? Um, goodness, let's see. I'm wondering if I have skipped over something that I should have uh, mentioned. Yep, I have. I'm sorry. Look up at verse 9. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Verse 11. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Okay, so his first question is a question about his identity. You know, who am I? Why would you choose me to do this task? And he said, But I will be with you, and this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. So, this is the first installment of a different looking or a different sounding Moses. Moses, who was once ready to right the wrongs that he saw, even by resorting to murder, he's now portrayed as cautious. He's now not so self-assured anymore. Who am I? Could this be the result of a few years of humbling? He's no longer favored in the house of Pharaoh, but now he's been tending flocks, the flocks of his father-in-law. So his first objection we see is, who am I? Moses doubts the worth of his own identity. He doubts, am I good enough? I'm not from the right family, perhaps. I'm not from the right pedigree. Who am I? But how does God reply? God replies by saying, not, oh, Moses, you're good enough, brother. Just see your worth. That's not what he says. He says, oh, Moses, you got to look within. You didn't summon that courage, brother. He doesn't say that either. He doesn't tell Moses to be confident because of anything in Moses. He tells Moses to be confident because of everything that is in God. He says, Moses, the source of your confidence should be who God is, not who you are. And friends, I must say, as Christians... We have to have this kind of answer to people who are in despair. Many times, uh, I would say this, I've noticed in in many many, um, Bible study curricula, it seems to be that the answer is, the answer to a lack of confidence is, no, look at all the good things inside of you. The problem is that that doesn't really work because there's not really much reason when we really look at what the Bible says about us, there's not really that much reason to to stake our confidence in us. Instead, I think the biblical picture is don't go for self-confidence, go for God-confidence. 
Fix your, fix your sense of security in who He is, not in what you can do. Um, this seems to be the pattern. And by the way, this is the same encouragement that's given to us at the Great Commission. Remember, when it tells us to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. By the way, this, is, this can be a very intimidating thing to do, to evangelize, to try to make disciples. And so right at the moment where we're about to shrink back from the Great Commission, we're about to shrink back, oh, I don't know if I have all the answers. Oh, I don't know if I'm a good evangelist. Oh, I don't have the spiritual gift of evangelism. Oh, I don't know if I know how to make a disciple. I don't, who am I? Who am I? Right at the moment we're about to shrink back and say, oh, Lord, you've got to send somebody else to go share the gospel with, these per- with this person. God says what at the end of the Great Commission? For I am with you always to the end of the age. Our source of confidence is not anything in us. Our source of confidence is who God is and the fact that He will be with us. Why? Because He has promised to be with us. He has said that He will be. So, that's the answer to this first objection. Who am I? Well, Moses, it doesn't really matter who you are. I created you and I will be with you and I'll give you everything that you need. What if they ask me your name? That's the second thing that he says. This is an interesting question. Then Moses, this is verse 13, then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask, What is his name? What shall I say to them? This is an interesting question. The people of Israel ought to be fairly familiar with who their own God is. Why would they ask him the name of their God? What's really going on here, according to the commentators that I read, and and I think that they're right about this, Moses is not actually asking what would happen if the people ask which God is giving the orders. They know about Yahweh. They know about their God. Moses is asking how he will explain why it matters. He's asking how he will explain the character of their God and why God's character has a bearing on what they are to do and how they are to obey. Of what consequence is this God, is what they're asking. What about Him is relevant? And how does God answer this question? God said to Moses, I am who I am. Before that, He says, um, well, Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God... The God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, uh, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice. And you and, and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now, please let us go a three days' journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. Wonder what mighty hand could move the heart of the king. Verse 20. So I will stretch out my hand 
and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I, that I will do in it. And after that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. So you shall plunder the Egyptians. So, the second objection. What if they ask me your name? How does God reply? He tells him, remember what kind of God I am? I am. In other words, I am the one true God. I am the one who exists. I am the one for whom and through whom all things exist. I'm the God of history who has shown himself to be faithful in history to the people of Egypt, uh, to the people of Israel. Remember everything that I did for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Remember all the promises that I have kept, in other words. Remember my acts. There, there comes a, a third objection. Chapter 4, verse 1. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice. Actually, God has just told Moses that they would. So now what Moses is doing is doubting the very words of God from just a few moments ago. Moses answered, but behold, they will not believe me. He's almost arguing with God at this point. They will not believe me or, or listen to my voice. For they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. And the Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? And he said, a staff. And he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground and it became a serpent. And Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand. That they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside the cloak and he took it out and behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. And if they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the, on the dry ground and the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. And so what God is doing here is making provision for the unbelieving hearts that Moses may encounter. Ultimately, they won't be unbelieving because God is moving His purposes forward and He knows the future. God provides some signs. I will say that in the Bible, it seems that the use of signs is never, never usually something to be sought after. It's usually an example of the faithlessness of the people and God using the signs to overcome them. In the New Testament, of course, people keep asking for signs. Like Jesus would, would do signs, and at the end of him doing signs, they would say, show us a sign. It's like, what, were you not here just two minutes ago? Why do you want another sign? It's because of the hardness of our hearts, the hardness of the human heart. It can't even be overcome uh, by signs. And that's why we need God to open the eyes of our hearts so that we can see what it is that we need to see. Then there comes, in verse 10, another objection. Verse 10, But Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. 
Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, Oh my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. So, here are actually two objections. The first is this. What if my own personal weakness gets in the way? What if I don't know enough of the Bible? What if I don't have all the answers? What if I have a disability? Or what if I have something that people may uh, look at and it would cause them not to respect me, my speech impediment or, or something like that? What if my own personal weaknesses get in the way? God, here's the reality, God actually glorifies himself most by working through human weaknesses. So we should never be afraid of our weaknesses because they are usually the very black backdrop against which God wants to, to set out the diamond of the gospel. You know, when you go to a jeweler, he always pulls out that black cloth, right? Because it's against that backdrop that you can see the beauty of the jewel. It says this in 2 Corinthians verse, uh, chapter 4, But we have this treasure in jars of clay, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. In other words, we have this treasure in jars of clay. Why? To show the power of God. Confidence is always to be directed to the Lord. Um... I've already kind of talked about that in another point, but our confidence, again, is not in our abilities or our disabilities, but it is in the character of God. That is the only rock that does not move. And then lastly, we actually, I think, get to the crux of the matter. He's out of objections, and now he's just saying what he wants to happen. Just send somebody else. Don't send me. I got through my four objections, you know, it's like sometimes when I'm preaching, I want to tell you three reasons for something, and I get to the second one, I can't think of a third one. So, you know, I just, I just come up with it. Just send somebody else, Moses says. God, I'll give you five reasons. One, two, three, four, and I just, just somebody else. God's anger is directed toward Moses' unwillingness to obey, but in grace, God makes provision for Moses, right? By raising up Aaron to help him. So, God can be at the same time displeased and still show mercy and still show grace. Here's the Christ connection. Remember, we've talked about the fact that Moses is a Christ figure. Well, how is that? I think there are a few glimpses that we can see of that here. The first is this, remember? When he says, uh, well, let's see, "...go back to Egypt for all the men who were seeking your life are dead." Remember, that's, that's in here. And see, I, I tell you what, I am terrible about putting the quotes in and not putting the references. Let's see. <clears throat> okay, look at verse 18. Chapter 4, verse 18. And Moses went back to Jethro and his father-in-law and said to them, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. 
And the Lord said to Moses and Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons that he had, and had them ride on a donkey. And he went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. So, here's a little interesting parallel. Go back to Egypt. Why? For all the men who were seeking your life are dead. Who else was that said to? Right? Remember when Herod sent Jesus, basically Jesus' family fled to Egypt so that Jesus, the little boy, would not be killed because Herod was, was killing all of the, the young Jewish boys? In a sense, Jesus recapitulated the life of Moses right here. We see that. In Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 23, this happens. There was a flight to Egypt. They, they, they fled to Egypt. Uh, then there was, because of the killing of the children, right? It seems to be a, a pattern here that those who are desiring to put to death the children are the seed of the, of the serpent, uh, warring against the seed of the woman, happened in Moses' life, it happened in Jesus' life. This uh, genocidal or infanticidal king. Then there was a return because those who sought Christ's life are dead. Happened in, happened in Matthew and it happens here in Exodus. It reinforces to us that Moses is a Christ figure. It's setting up little things that you read this, you read your Old Testament, and then you get to the New Testament, you read about the life of Jesus, you're like, wait a second, this has happened before. This happened before. Happened in the life of Moses. And then I need to read this uh, interesting little account that, um, and, and try to explain it. Let's see if I can find where that is. Yep, okay. So they're on their way back. Look at verse 24. Well, let's just look at verse 21. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn. And I say to you, Let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. This is interesting. Look at verse 24. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Wow, that's interesting. Then Zipporah, his wife, took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he left him alone. And then it was, <clears throat> it was, then, it was then that she said, a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Okay, this is an interesting thing, but it's important to uh, parse it out a little bit while we're here. This shocking encounter teaches us some, some powerful biblical truths. In other words, even Moses himself was not excused from the requirement of circumcision for his children. Okay, So this sign that was given to Abraham and his family uh, to set off the people of God, this has to be done. Well, Moses hadn't done it, but he has to now. And the Lord is so adamant about this that he's about, he's about to kill Moses if he doesn't obey. 
But then his wife intercedes, diverts, and, and through obedience, diverts the wrath of God. All kinds of pictures going on here. You know, we were excused from our disobedience because of the obedience of another on our behalf, Jesus Christ. Interesting parallels. So here's what we learn. God is serious about His covenant. Moses was obligated to follow the law by circumcising his offspring. Secondly, the intercession of another, the works of another, Zipporah, saves Moses' life. And then number three, only blood can make one right before God. So here's a picture, this emphasis on blood that comes right in this picture. It's the blood that turns away the wrath of God at this moment. Where else have we seen that? Well, on Calvary's hill, friends. And then lastly, where does it say this? I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. The same identity, by the way, the same identity, this I am identity is taken up by Jesus to demonstrate that he himself is God. This is what I usually bring up with Jehovah's Witnesses. And of course, there's just a hardness of heart there and they just don't want to see what's just so stinking obvious. When G, you know, it's like, oh, Jesus never claimed to be God. And I'm like, my goodness, why do you think they killed him? Like he, he was blaspheming, making himself equal with God. The Bible says that. And then, and then when they don't want to talk about that, I'll say, well, remember in the Old Testament when, when Jehovah, you know, when Yahweh says, I am that I am. What do you think it means when Jesus has like this whole litany of I am statements? Is that not a telegraph? Like, is that not a stinking, like, clear as day sign of Jesus saying who he is? For those who have ears to hear, it is. It is. Jesus takes up the same identity in the New Testament. He says, I am the door. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the good shepherd. I am the gate. All of these pictures. I am. So, let's review the Christ connection. Early in life, he passes... He passes through the waters of judgment. Remember when his, when his mother sets him out in this little, this little basket? He sets him through the waters of judgment, right? He could die. She's just casting him out there. But he gets saved through the judgment that was coming from the Pharaoh who was going to kill all the babies. It mirrors Noah and ultimately salvation in Christ. Noah's ark passed through the waters of judgment and they were saved. Moses is a prophet. Raised up from the people of Israel. Jesus is a prophet as well. He's prophet, priest, and king. He came and very much saw himself being in the line of all the prophets. He's just the last one. Jesus is the last one, right? You killed all the prophets before. Why would we expect they would do anything different now? He escapes the murderous schemes of the seed of the serpent, right? We see this in Moses. We see it in Jesus. He escapes, he escapes murder in childhood. He's prepared by God for his task. Even Jesus, in a sense, had to be prepared in a sense, right? Remember the temptation of Jesus early on in his ministry. He was proven to be true. Um, it says in Hebrews that he learned obedience, and that's a very theologically charged term, and perhaps if we preach through uh, Hebrews at some point, I can unpack all of that, but basically what it means is that Jesus 
Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, at every point that he needed to obey, he always did. Okay? So he grew up, he learned obedience, he never failed, he never sinned, but at every moment that he needed to obey, he was always faithful to obey. Um, so Jesus, in a sense, of course, Jesus is perfect, but he's prepared. There, was 33, there were 30 years of preparation before his three-year ministry. Moses had to be prepared too. Of course, Moses is a broken person, a sinner. His preparation looks a little different. And then lastly, he leads his people out of bondage. Moses eventually leads his people out of a physical bondage. Jesus leads his people out of the spiritual bondage of sin. So, Moses is a Christ figure. Uh, he is a deliverer, but he points to the real deliverer, Yahweh. God who sends His Son Jesus to take care of us and to atone for our sins. Friends, let's praise God because of these qualities that He's told us about and let's apply them to our lives and let's commit to tell others about them. Would you pray with me? And we will be dismissed tonight um, in, a, in a couple moments, of course. Let's pray. God, thank You. Thank You for um, giving us pictures giving us pictures to, to let us know what to expect when your son would come. Lord, forgive us for thinking that we would be like that we would be unlike those of the New Testament who rejected Jesus. Lord, the only reason that we see what we see in the scriptures is because you have enabled us to. You have opened the eyes of our hearts. We, like Moses, we don't have a spiritual pedigree. We didn't come from the right families. And, and we have not uh, done anything to, to make us good before our salvation that would, that would make us acceptable to you. The only reason we are here is because of grace. The grace that you poured out on us. And so, Lord, I pray that these things would move on our hearts. And I pray that we would worship you because of them and live changed lives out of them. I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.